Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now, on CNN. And welcome back, live from the theater at Sahara, Las Vegas. This is a CNN town hall event. Good evening, I'm Anderson Cooper. Voters in Nevada are just days away from putting their stamp on the 2020 Democratic presidential primary race tonight. Please welcome Senator Amy Klobuchar. Very good. Welcome. Thanks, Anderson. Thanks for being here. How are you? Good. We're going to get to audience questions in just a minute. I just want to ask you about tomorrow night on the debate stage. You've been saying that you want to see Michael Bloomberg on a debate stage. It's going to happen tomorrow night. Uh, you said you can't beat him in terms of the money he's got, but you can on a debate stage. How do you plan to do that? Uh, well, you know, it's maybe a series of debates, um, but I'm just I actually thought he should be on the debate stage because I don't think you should just be able to buy your way to the presidency. And my issue is that um, a number of us, including the three of us that you saw tonight, uh, have been going uh, in town halls like this. We've been answering questions. We've been going to states like Nevada um, and actually meeting the voters and having them quiz us and ask all kinds of things and put our policies out there. And I think that's what a presidential candidate should do. So, you know, I don't um, uh, mind that he has this money. That's a great thing that he made that money. Uh, but we want to make sure that we have the best candidate to lead the ticket. And I don't think that when people look at Donald Trump, they automatically say, hmm, can we get someone richer? I just don't think that's what they say. I think they say we want to have someone that we know uh, can lead this country. And I think that's me. All right. I want you to meet. This is um, Heather Goose. She's a bartender, server in Las Vegas. She was working at the Route uh, 91 Harvest Music Festival the night of the mass shooting that killed 58 people, wounded hundreds of others. She right now is undecided. Heather, welcome. Okay. Hi, Hi, Senator. Thank you for being here. Um, As a survivor of the October 1st, 2017 mass shooting here in Las Vegas, Gun violence prevention is an incredibly important subject to me. I've seen firsthand what happens. I support the Second Amendment, but I feel like we definitely need to have better background checks and more enforcement of gun laws already on the books. How do you plan to address gun violence prevention without provoking the pro-gun versus anti-gun debate? What a a good question, and I want to... First of all, tell you, Heather, I'm so glad you're here. And I cannot imagine, I don't think any of us here can imagine what that was like for you. And you must think about those moments all the time. And yep. what? Live every, 
like my bracelet says, you went to live every day for those who died. Exactly. And you being here, um, you being here and asking that question uh, is just pushing people to talk about this and never forget. Um, So I'll tell you how I come to this because you asked that question about um, gun owners and the interaction with the Second Amendment. So my state actually is a pretty big hunting state. Um, And so I look at these proposals and I always say, do they hurt my Uncle Dick in the deer stand? And they don't. And I think that's why we see in a, a, there was a poll last summer that showed for the majority of hunters, this was a Fox poll, and it said the majority of hunters actually supported universal background checks. They should. Uh, The majority of Trump owners uh, support universal background checks. So let's think about why we don't have them. I think uh, the first thing is that there are a lot of politicians out there that are afraid of the NRA. And I saw this firsthand after the Parkland shooting because I've been uh, working on a number of pieces of legislation uh, that would make things safer. One of the bills that I've always led is the bill to close the boyfriend loophole that basically says if someone has been convicted of domestic abuse, uh, then they cannot go out and get an assault weapon. They can't go out and buy a gun. That is... That is pretty straightforward, and yet it is sitting right now along with the universal background check bill um, and a bill that does something called close the Charleston loophole, uh, which was a result of that uh, incredibly uh, sad tragedy, uh, that murder in the church in uh, South Carolina where uh, white nationalists came in and killed a bunch of worshipers in a black church in Charleston. That bill... My bill and the universal background check bill are all sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk right now because they passed the House of Representatives. My bill actually got some Republican support. So why aren't these things passing? Well, the NRA wields so much clout right now with some of these Republicans that we basically need to shake things up. And I sat across from Donald Trump in the White House after Parkland, and I watched because I came to advocate for my bill, and I watched... And nine times, I had a piece of paper, and I wrote it down. He said, and I did with hash marks, nine times that he wanted universal background checks to the public. It was, there's a video of this. And then what does he do? He meets with the NRA the next day, and he folds. And as your president, I will not fold. I know that we can do this. We can which would have been so helpful in the Las Vegas massacre, uh, we could permanently put in place, uh, just like your legislature has done in Nevada, a ban on bump stocks. Uh, We can put in the assault weapon ban, the background checks, magazine limits, all of these things. Uh, And I just, I think the public's with us. In 2018, we elected a bunch of House members in districts uh, that had people who were too beholden to the NRA. And they went to Washington and they helped pass these bills. So there's absolutely no reason that we can't get these done. And I'll just end with one last thing. One of my saddest days, or the saddest day I had in Washington, is when we were voting on that universal background check bill. Because I had those Sandy Hook parents in my office. And I had to tell them that we didn't have the votes to get it done. And this one mom, she looked at me, she said, you know what? Uh, My kid, uh, 
he had autism and he could hardly talk. And the last day that I saw him, just like he did every day, he pointed up to a picture on the refrigerator of his school aide who was with him every day because he loved her so much. And then he went to school. And she said, hours later, I'm in that firehouse, and one by one the kids come in, and the parents that are left know we're never going to see our babies again. And she said as she was sobbing in that firehouse, she had this thought of that school aide because she knew that that woman would never leave her son's side. And when they found them in that school, that woman had her arms around that little boy, and they were both shot to death. Those parents had the courage, just like the people in Nevada, Ordinary citizens who ran into that massacre to save lives, they had the courage to do that. And there are people, including our president, that doesn't have the courage to stand up to the NRA. You have the power, Nevada, to change that and put a new leader in the White House. This is, uh, this is Alpha Nash. Uh, Alpha is a, uh, a high school art teacher, and she's currently undecided. Alpha, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi. Thank Hi, you Alpha. so much. Um, sure. Welcome, Senator. Thank um, you. My question is, how do you plan to protect our under-18 population who are illegal immigrants who came to this country as young children? Do you have a plan on helping to fast-track them into citizenship? And if so, what are the steps to make this happen? Sure. Thank you. And thank you for being uh, a teacher. (laughs) Yes, thank Uh, you. My mom actually taught second grade until she was 70 years old. Hopefully you can retire sooner than that. We'll see. (laughs) um, But I can tell you love your kids even beyond the work that you do in the classroom. So as we know, um, what uh, she's talking about here are dreamers. Um, And there are so many young people here who only know one country or only know one state. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have been taking this on for a while. I kept trying to think about how I can get people to understand what this is. And I finally found a, uh, this few years ago, a 99-year-old dreamer. (laughs) He um, had been brought over when he was five years old. He didn't know it. He thought he had been born in our country. And I see one of our uh, Navy veterans out there with a hat. He signed up to serve in World War II. And when he signed up to serve, uh, that was when he found out uh, that he was a dreamer, that he had not been born in our country, and so then you couldn't serve. So what they did back then, get this, is they would say, okay, uh, just come and live in Canada for one day. (laughs) Stay overnight in Canada. The Army did this. And then you can come back, and you're a citizen because they needed people to serve. This is uh, uh, during World War II. And he said, I stayed in a hotel, and I came back, and I was a citizen. And then he served under General MacArthur. Um, He served bravely. He came back to Minnesota. He got married. Uh, They had a son. That son served in the Vietnam War. Um, And I finally thought, okay, I brought him to stand in front of the World War II Memorial uh, when he was now at this point over 100 years old with two dreamers from the suburbs of my state uh, who wanted to serve in the Air Force but couldn't under our current rules. And there's no way under the current rules they could just go to Canada for a day. So I wanted to make that point. Um, And the answer, of course, is comprehensive immigration reform, uh, which would help not only dreamers with a 
fast track to citizenship, uh, but also a track to citizenship for many others. That bill passed the U.S. Senate in 2013. I was part of the Judiciary Committee, worked on that bill. I know as president I can get things done. I can get it done in the first year. I don't think we can wait uh, because this president, we actually worked out an agreement on Dreamers with Republicans in the Senate, and we were gut-punched by the Trump administration. This is just another reason for a change. Think about it. Immigrants. 70 of our Fortune 500 companies are headed up by people from other countries. 25% of our U.S. Nobel laureates were born in other countries. Immigrants don't diminish America. They are America. Let me just follow up with you. You've been in the Senate for 10 years. Uh, You've seen a lot of people try this and and fail. In 2007, uh, it didn't work under George Bush. Uh, Obviously, under Obama in 2013. Why would it be different with you as president? I think the need has become clearer and clearer. Um, And we were so close in 2013. George Bush worked valiantly, actually, to try to get that done. And back then, it was right-wing talk radio defeated it. Uh, Then you go to 2013, and President Obama had come in in the middle of the downturn. He tried it in his second term, and he worked really hard as well. A number of those senators that voted for it, Republicans, are still there today. Um, And that bill back in 2013 got stopped. Uh, I think it ended up in John Boehner's freezer when he was Speaker of the House next to the frozen peas. And the point of it is Nancy Pelosi is now the Speaker. Um, I believe that if I am our candidate for president, we're going to be able to win big and make sure we keep the House and win, win in these uh, Senate districts like in Arizona, right, and in Colorado, and make a change. But there are Republicans in the Senate that will still vote for comprehensive immigration reform. And you just need to do it in your first year. I have made that very clear. That's what I will do. Um, And I think we can get it done. And one other argument I'd make for people that when you're talking to your friends and neighbors that people don't always think about this, um, it brings the deficit down. This was a nonpartisan budget office assessment by $158 billion in 10 years. Comprehensive immigration. Why? Why is that? Because people come out of the shadows and they start paying taxes. Um, The AFL-CIO supported the bill uh, because wages will go up. Uh, The private sector, of course, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, supported the comprehensive immigration bill. So there's a lot of good arguments for it um, that bring in people of different backgrounds. Um, I want to ask you about something that happened recently. You were asked to to give the name of the president of Mexico. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you couldn't at the time. Mayor Buttigieg did know the name. And he says it helps his argument that Washington experience isn't necessary to be president. Does it? Oh, my. Okay, well... Um, first of all, I uh, would like to uh, give my greetings to President uh, Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador, <laughs> the president of Mexico. Um, and um, I, uh, when that happened, for what it's worth, I had been in the Senate all day. We had six votes, um, and including a resolution uh, to be a check on the president so he doesn't go pell-mell into war with Iran. Um, And I got on a plane and got there, I think, at midnight my time and had a fast interview and then did two forums after that, I think ending at about two or three in the morning. So, you know, such is life. Um, And and I would say uh, to the mayor, 
uh, this isn't like a game of Jeopardy. Um, this is about, to me, experience, and I have so much respect uh, for him and his experience, but my experience is different. Um, I have been in the Senate. I have passed over 100 bills as the lead Democrat. I think that matters. And most importantly, I have been able to win in rural and suburban districts. I have been able to win with independents and Republicans, not once, not twice, but three times, and bring people with me. Um, I think that's really important right now, that we build this coalition, um, that we not shut people out. And I know he agrees with me on that, uh, but I am the one that actually has the receipts of anyone that you'll see on the debate stage uh, tomorrow night that's done it. So it's just a different experience uh, that I bring uh, to this and uh, to the job. And as far as uh, Mexico in general, I think I was the uh, first one on the stage, yes, uh, who gave my support uh, to the United States uh, Mexican-Canadian trade agreement, which um, I think got much better because of the hard work of people like my friend Sherrod Brown in terms of some labor uh, provisions and earned the support of the president of the AFL-CIO, Richard Trumpka. Um, I think that implementing that is going to be the job of the new president, making sure that those uh, provisions are strong and that we enforce uh, the trade agreement to help our workers. Um, and I also think having a president, unlike this president, who's going to reach out to our allies immediately. In my first 100 days, I will be meeting with the president of Mexico, the president um, the Prime Minister of Canada, uh, Justin Trudeau, as well as so many of our allies around the world. I think that has to immediately happen with a new president. Um, I want to uh, introduce you to uh, Natalie Galvin. She's a retired registered nurse from Henderson. She's supporting you. Natalie, welcome. Hi, Natalie. Good evening. I was just Sen in Henderson. Oh, good evening, Senator. Um, as the first woman president, what will be the first thing you do you will do for the women in this country pertaining to equality. Okay, well, very good. Well, I think uh, there's a lot we should do. Um, but I think um, actually uh, passing the ERA would be a nice thing to do. Um, I don't know if it'll be the first thing that I get done, but it's been waiting for a while. Um, I also think uh, that economic issues for women and men are key. Um, getting an increase to the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage that has not happened um, for literally nearly a decade would be really important uh, for a lot of women workers. Um, getting child care, universal child care, uh, would be so key uh, for so many uh, workers. Making sure uh, that we keep strong a women's right to choose um, would be so good when we have a... Um, when we have a president uh, that uh, is trying to uh, literally tear apart uh, women's right to reproductive freedom. Uh, there is so much we can do, but I think one of the um, amazing things uh, about being the first woman president uh, would be uh, to basically have um, every little girl in America and really around the world think anything and everything is possible. And you think about... Um, 
I was just with uh, some of the uh, culinary workers, the house, the housekeepers today. I just left there, uh, a big group of women, and a number of them, because they had just gotten off work, um, had their uh, little kids, girls and boys, on their laps. Um, and you look at those kids, and you think they could grow up in a different world uh, where maybe they won't even remember when Donald Trump was president. <laughs> if I could just follow up briefly... Um other countries, other countries have had women presidents before. What do you think it says about our country that, that we haven't? You know, um, actually, Hillary Clinton did get the most votes. Let us remember that. So I think that, you know, I, I think people are ready for it. Um, I think it is, I've thought about this a lot because actually in my races, I was the first woman in both jobs I had as a, a county attorney and then as a woman senator uh, from my state. And um, I didn't really talk about it much back then because women had tried to run uh, for the U.S. Senate in my state twice, and they were both really qualified, and they didn't make it. And there had been a lot of emphasis on put the first woman in. And so when I ran, I made very clear I was running on my merits, uh, that I was honored to be, uh, would be honored to be the first woman senator, but that wasn't enough of a reason, uh, that I had to show I had the experience and I had to have a plan of what I wanted to get done. And I made that really clear uh, throughout the campaign. Um, and I think that's really important in this race as well. I know it would be cool to be the first woman president, believe me. And I think a lot of women out there know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, but I think that the story uh, that we tell and the campaign that we run have to be more than about that. It's got to be about people's dreams. It's got to be about uh, the fact that we have a president that can't seem to put himself into the shoes of other people. I was saying this the other day uh, in the last debate, uh, that um, uh, he literally seems to lack empathy. Because if he had empathy, he wouldn't be talking about immigrants the way he did. If he had empathy, he wouldn't be littling people uh, like my friend who I miss so much, John McCain. Uh, if he had empathy, if he had empathy, he would be working on things like childcare. And so, as I've made it so clear, uh, my pitch to the people of this state and across the country uh, is that if you are having trouble deciding between uh, filling your refrigerator with food or your insulin prescription, I know you, and I'll fight for you. And if you can't figure out if you're going to pay for child care for your kids or long-term care for your parents, which I'm dealing with right now for my dad, I know you and I'll fight for you. And if you can't figure out how to make your paycheck stretch uh, to uh, pay your mortgage or your rent, I know you and I'll fight for you. And there is such a big difference between me and Donald Trump. <laughs> one of them... One of them is a, um, I loved when the president went after Michael Bloomberg and the president said that uh, Michael Bloomberg was five foot four and uh, Michael Bloomberg's like, no, I'm not. I'm taller than that. I'm the only one that has a claim to be five foot four. I want to be very clear. But, you know, he got $413 million over the course of his life from his dad. That's great. Uh, me, my grandpa was an iron ore miner. Uh, my dad was a newspaper man. My mom was a teacher. And my grandpa saved money in a coffee can in the basement to send my dad to a two-year community college. That's my family's trust. 
and you cannot fit $413 million in a coffee can. And I figure if someone gives you opportunity, whether it's a parent uh, or a grandparent or whether it is someone you work with or a teacher, you do not go into the world with a sense of entitlement. You go into the world with a sense of obligation to lift people up instead of shoving them down. We're going to be right back with Senator Amy Klobuchar right after that. Thank you. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. from Sahara, Las Vegas, for a Democratic presidential town hall with Senator Amy Klobuchar. Let's get back to our questions. This is Pam uh, Whitfield-Jacobson, a dietitian from Las Vegas. She's currently undecided. Pam? Uh, question. Senator, we love how even and reasonable you are, but how would you compete with the bombast of Trump? Would you be lost in the shuffle? I don't think so, no. <laughs> if anyone has seen me on the debate stage, I don't think so, no. I think uh, that actually having someone very different uh, than he is, as I just described my background, um, I think that's really important. And I think the other thing is uh, to have an optimistic economic agenda that you keep pushing. That's going to be important. People want to have something to vote for and someone to vote for and not just someone to vote against. Uh, and then I think the other piece of it is um, how you, when you put yourself, I was just talking about before the break, putting yourself in the shoes of other people. Um, you know, not everyone um, agrees with everything that's said on the Democratic debate stage. I don't agree with everything that's said there. And there are a lot of people out there who are independents or moderate Republicans or people who uh, maybe stayed home in 2016 who see this as a patriotism check on this president. You know, they don't like that we have a president that stood next to a ruthless dictator and Vladimir Putin and uh, when asked about Russian interference in the election made a joke about it. Think about it. Hundreds of thousands of Americans have lost their lives on the battlefield standing up for democracy. That's what World War II was about. Four little girls at the height of the civil rights movement lost their life because they were innocent, trying to be part of that democracy. And other people were trying to shove them out of that democracy. So I think it's important or they think of it as a decency check. I have met so many people that see it in those eyes. And you have others that feel like there have been promises that haven't been kept to them that, uh, you know, he keeps talking about the economy. Well, look at their prescription drug prices or what's he done when it comes to uh, child care or what he's done when it comes to rural broadband in uh, northern Nevada or the like. So I think you have um, a lot of things that people are thinking. And then the last thing, I think it's important uh, to take him on and uh, be aggressive, of course. Uh, but I also think you've got to point out how absurd he is at times, right? <laughs> you do, and you have to, you have to be nimble. You have to be nimble in the moment uh, to be able to do that. So uh, when I announced my candidacy in the middle of that blizzard and he made fun of me for talking about climate change in a blizzard um, and called me snow woman, which I kind of liked, actually, I, uh, 
uh, I uh, uh, sent out a tweet and said, the science is on my side, Donald Trump, when it comes to climate change, and I'd like to see how your hair would fare in a blizzard. <laughs> or, um, or, like, you look at the, the absurdity of when other people, when things go wrong for them and they can't afford stuff, They've got to get out alone, or they've got to work extra hours, or find another different job, or their spouse has to go work. With him, when anything goes wrong, what does he do? He blames other people. That's what he does. He blames other people. Picture him going by that helicopter, it's whirring, and he's like yelling about stuff. He blames Barack Obama. He loves blaming Barack Obama. He does that all the time. The president who had so much dignity, right? He, I'm talking about President Obama. He, uh, he blames, he, uh, he blames the generals he commands. He's done that. He uh, blames the Federal Reserve head that he appointed. He blames the entire kingdom of Denmark. Who does that? He does that. I kept saying that uh, throughout New Hampshire, and I had this cult of Danish people following me that would wave flags. And then my favorite one recently is that he blamed the uh, prime minister of Canada for cutting him out of the Canadian version of Home Alone 2. Like, who does that? So I think, you know, you have to be able, and I am not... one moment making light of what he has done to so many people, how immigrants feel in this society, how people of color feel when he says there are two sides after Charlottesville, when one side is a Ku Klux Klan, there is only one side, and that's the American side. But, but when we take this guy on, we have got to remember what he does and how he does it and have someone that's able to take him on uh, in his own arena. Um, I want you okay. to meet Brandon Cromer. He's a law student at UNLV. Okay. He's currently undecided. Brandon? Okay, Brandon, thank you, and congratulations for being a law student. Thank you, Senator, and thank you for being here. Mm-hmm. Currently, there is a movement to push for marijuana legalization. As you may know, men and women of color were disproportionately prosecuted for small marijuana possession. If marijuana is legalized, would you consider a pardon or encourage states to seal or expunge those records? Uh, yes, I would. Um, and uh, by the way, I'm well aware of what this state has done in Nevada, uh, where uh, you um, uh, legalized marijuana and where you actually um, um, put in place, I think, medical marijuana. Um, and you did that. Um, when you made some changes to uh, the legislature and a new governor and the like. Um, And so I think it's really important to look at it um, as a way of um, making changes to our drug policy and doing the right thing. And I think there's other things that we should be doing as well. Uh, We just passed the First Step Act, uh, which is a bipartisan effort in the Congress that reduced the federal sentences for nonviolent offenders, uh, some of them way too long. Um, And I actually uh, was a co-sponsor of that bill. Um, And now I think we need to have the Second Step Act, uh, which is to look at the fact that uh, 90% of people incarcerated are in state and local jails. Um, And when you look at some of these nonviolent offenders, uh, you see that these sentences are too long and uh, you make changes. So I think there's still so much more work uh, that needs to be done when it comes to criminal justice reform. So thank you. 
I want to uh, just follow up on that. Um, I want to ask you about your uh, a study from your first year as a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a study from the Council on Crime and Justice. It found that black men ages 18 to 30 in Hennepin County were 15 times more likely to be arrested for narcotics offenses than white men, 12 times more likely to be arrested for serious violent crimes, five times more likely for serious property crimes. W- were you aware of those disparities at the time? Uh, I think anyone that's worked in the criminal justice system knows there's institutional racism. And um, over the years, um, I think we've seen uh, just how devastating that is. And when I was there, I worked hard on, for instance, um, doing more when it came to white collar crime, uh, doing more with drug courts. And while there were still uh, disparities in our system like there were any, uh, we at least managed in those eight years to reduce uh, the African-American incarceration rate uh, by 12 percent. And um, but there's still more to be done. We just talked about sentencing reform. Um, I think there needs to be more done when it comes to uh, grand jury reform. Um, I, when I was there, I worked on um, eyewitness identification and uh, making sure that when um, police showed witnesses' pictures, uh, that they showed them one at a time instead of all at once, uh, because it's been proven there's uh, mostly racially involved misidentifications uh, when you do it that way. Also making sure the officer showing the picture doesn't know who it is. Hmm. Um, that can make a big difference. Um, using everything from DNA reviews to making sure that both our uh, police departments and our prosecutor's offices are diverse makes a big difference. Um, and I, I just think we have to come to grips with the fact uh, that while um, we must keep our community safe. You can do that at the same time uh, you get at the institutional racism that we have in the criminal justice system. This is Paula Zinko. She's a uh, maintenance dispatcher from Las Vegas. She's an undecided caucus goer. Paula? Good evening, Hi, Senator. As a Jewish woman, I would like to know, what do you plan on doing to improve the anti-Semitic attitude that has been on the rise in this country? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, and. I think we know, if you didn't know that it was going on, when you uh, look at what just happened in New York City, um, uh, the rabbi's home uh, where uh, uh, this stabbing occurred, uh, can you imagine, um, at a time that was supposed to be joyful, um, of a holiday, and you have uh, this madman, anti-Semitic, coming in um, and stabbing uh, people in the rabbi's home. Uh, we've seen that time and time again in this country. And I actually go back to my days that I mentioned uh, when I was uh, the head county attorney in our biggest county, um, and I took on hate crimes in a big way then. And it was everything from um, a African-American kid, a guy literally told people, I'm going to go and shoot a black kid on Martin Luther King Day. And he did it. Um, it was just a miracle uh, that this young man wasn't killed. Uh, but we went after that guy, of course, for um, attempted murder. Um, or a, a manager at a, a floor manager at a, a manufacturing floor who literally hit an employee over the head with a two-by-four for speaking Spanish. That case happened. Um, since I've been in the Senate, we had a mosque uh, that was uh, uh, bombed in Minneapolis, uh, by a suburb of Minneapolis, uh, by white nationalists. And that's why 
when you look at this, we have seen this increase in hate crimes in this country. Uh, many of them involving synagogues, uh, like we saw at the Tree of Life Synagogue, and many involving other um, religious centers. Uh, so the first thing you do is you make sure you have an attorney general in place uh, that is going to make this a priority. That's number one. Number two, you work with local law enforcement and you have major coordination with local law enforcement, local DAs, uh, state attorney generals, because so much of the work on this is done on the front end. Uh, you look at how you can look for the signs, right? Some of this is everything from schools to social media. Uh, and by the way, having enough counselors and other people in the schools to identify this, which as you know, as we talked about gun violence, uh, is not just about mass shootings. It's also about everyday violence and what we can see. And then the third thing uh, is education. <laughs> and making sure that people understand uh, this right to worship and how fundamental it is. Um, one of the more endearing stories that I heard from our Jewish community uh, in Minnesota um, was that they had a threat uh, phoned in to their community center, and everyone had to leave. It wasn't just uh, people who were there for meetings. It was people, little kids in swimming pools and seniors that were there. And they were all, it was a cold day, and they had to wander outside. And uh, when they came in and they checked their messages, the first message, and we'd worked hard on this in our community, saying, do you need a meeting space, was from the Islamic Center of Minnesota. Um, and so those kinds of stories and making sure that people know that kind of interfaith alliances that still exist and are so strong and having a president that wants to talk about it, I think that makes a big difference too. It's knowing how you enforce the laws. It's putting people in place that will do it. But it is also having the heart to actually make it a priority. I want you to meet uh, Tommy Sheehan. Uh, he's from uh, State Line, Nevada. He's the founder and CEO of a software company. He's currently undecided. Tommy, welcome. Hi, Tommy. Hi, Senator Klobuchar. Thank you for your service. Thank um, you. Vladimir Putin had, and his regime have attacked Western democracies throughout the world with fake information, Facebook, Instagram accounts, and attacked our election in 2016. Putin seems to have a disproportional influence over Trump and several actors in Washington. What are your views on regime change in Moscow? <laughs> okay, so I think the way that you get uh, people in other countries uh, to uh, want to believe in actually having a democracy um, is by having strong leaders in your own democracies. I will start with that, uh, that respect democracies. Uh, so they have something to look to. Uh, when you look at what happened with the fall of the Iron Curtain and other uh, moments in history, a lot of people in those countries who were desperate uh, for examples of beacons of democracy would look to our own country. So making sure that our democracy is working and that we have a president that actually believes in democracy is key. I think the second thing um, is to be very firm in our relationships uh, with Vladimir Putin. We know that this isn't just about interfering in our election. Uh, we know that uh, under uh, his um, 
regime, uh, that they have done things like poisoned uh, dissidents, like went after and uh, killed journalists, uh, like brought down planes, uh, like invading Ukraine, uh, which I'll never forget being there with um, the Ukrainians on the front line on New Year's Eve with my friend John McCain, one of the last trips that he took. Now, why did he take that trip um, right after Donald Trump was elected? He took me and Senator Graham on this trip to Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia and Georgia and, of course, Ukraine, because he wanted to make that point loud and clear to our allies that we stood with them against Russian aggression and that America stood with them. And literally every country we went to, the leader of that country would be on one podium and the three of us uh, would be on the other podium. So I learned a lot with John McCain, um, and I learned the importance of those things. And one last thing I would add as we go into this election and we think about what we can do here at home uh, to stand up uh, for our own elections, because you brought up uh, some of the things that they had done in our election. And by the way, the same thing in other countries. I still remember that trip. Um, Estonia, uh, they had moved a statue of a, uh, of a Russian fighter uh, away from a public square into another location in a cemetery. And so they got all their internet shut down. You know everything. You're like, and they, like people would have to like try to go onto a hill to get service. Um, and and another country that we were in, uh, they had allowed uh, um, uh, Ukrainian uh, dissidents who were in exile, they had allowed them to come to a celebration in their country, and then those, those people got their um, uh, computers hacked into. This is a long, long history. Or one of the stories I heard um, from one of the Scandinavian uh, prime ministers, and uh, she said that they were mad at their country, Russia, uh, so they started running things on Russian. TV uh, that would get into their countries uh, that said that they had run out of fruits and vegetables. And then all these well-meaning Russians would cross over to see their friends with carrots and apples uh, because they, I mean, it just is endless. And so for our country's sake, what we should do, I think we never thought this would happen to us, uh, but it did. We have to, one, safeguard our democracies. I lead the bill for backup paper ballots. We still have a number of states um, that don't have backup paper ballots, and we need those. And then secondly, when it comes to social media, and I make a plea out there uh, to help. This is a bill that actually Senator Graham and I now have that says to the social media companies, you've got to follow the same rules for political ads uh, that TV and radio uh, and newspapers do, which is that you have to say who paid for things, right, on the ads, and then you have to keep those ads in an archive so people know what they are so other campaigns can check them out. And if you think this doesn't matter, I use an example of an image. This wasn't a paid ad, but an image that went out to African-American Facebook pages in the 2016 election. And it, we had it and displayed it in the Judiciary Committee. It was an innocent woman, innocent African-American woman from Chicago. They put her face on an image with a Hil fake Hillary logo. And it said, why wait in line to vote? This is in 2016. You can text your vote to 86153, made up some number. Think about that. 
They were suppressing the vote, whoever did that, by putting those images up. They were trying to get people not to go to the voting booths because they would think they could just text their vote in. To me, that's a crime. But that is what we are talking about when we talk about social media. So that is why the name of the bill is the Honest Ads Act. Mitch McConnell won't let it come forward. The citizens of this country should demand it. I'm wondering... As, uh, as president, in your first phone call with Vladimir Putin, what would you say to him? Um, I would say, hello. <laughs> um, and um, I would say, I would first of all um, make very clear um, that I will stand up for our democracy and stand up for human rights and uh, go through exactly um, everything I think uh, that has not been good. And then, then... I would say we should start uh, talking about negotiating uh, the nuclear agreements that we have for nuclear arms with Russia. One of them, unfortunately, Donald Trump has already gotten us out of, uh, which has not made the world safer. The other one uh, is called the New START Treaty, and it's going to end during a new president's term, and I would immediately start negotiating things. I think you can do two things at once, and the most important thing that we have to do is stand with our allies when it comes to Vladimir Putin. Also, I assume you'd allow your national security staff to listen in to the call. Yes, I would allow my national security staff to listen in to the call. That is correct. Uh, Anderson. Stay there. We have more questions for Senator Klobuchar right after this. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. I want, to, uh, I want to bring in Reverend James Costco. He's a pastor from Reno. He's currently undecided. Reverend, okay. welcome. Hi, Reverend. Good afternoon. <laughs> and Senator Klobuchar, I want to welcome you back to Nevada. Thank you. It's good to have you here. Yes, I was just in Reno. It was great. Yes. Um, I have a three-part question. Oh, I better stand that. up. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the good news is they are kind of related. Okay. Whew. As president, first of all, What joy can you bring back to this country? And secondly, what will you do to make each of us proud to be an American? And lastly, how will you reestablish our dignity and standing in the world community? Okay. All right. So... um the joy I will bring is the joy of loving people. <laughs> and I really think that that kind of um, zest uh, for uh, enjoying being with people, uh, even if you don't agree with everything they say, uh, seems to be missing right now with this president. Um, and you feel it when you want to have a president. I remember the old days as you look about being proud, your second part, being proud to be an American. You uh, remember, I do, uh, when my parents would uh, put the TV on because the president was giving an address. And it might not be a president that they had voted for um, or that they even terribly liked, uh, but they felt it was important to watch the president because they wanted to teach that to me, but they also 
um, wanted to know what the president was saying because they wanted to, as a citizen, understand that so that they could have discussions with people and the like. And I think we've lost that. Uh, right now. I think people are afraid when they uh, see him at a rally, they need to mute the volume because they don't know what he's going to say. There are teachers that they want to teach in a neutral way about, and they don't know because the things that he says and does isn't what they're teaching the kids at school. I just think we need to bring that sense of decency uh, back. Uh, and I know it's going to be boring when I don't send out a mean tweet at five in the morning. I know that. OK, I know that. And it's going to be really boring for the media. They're going to be like, oh, we got to find something else. Because I, I just think that has become such a negative thing. At the beginning, people were shocked. And he always finds ways to distract us every single day. Um, And then that makes it harder, right, to work on these long-term challenges, some of which we talked about, and things like bringing health care premiums down and uh, doing something about climate change and all of those things. It makes it harder to do because those are really hard things to work on because you've got to meet with people and you've got to draft a bill and do all these things. And he's just out there tweeting all the time. So I think that is that's the first thing. And then as far as our standing in the world. So um, I did a speech to the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, You can see it on our website at amyklobuchar.com, where you can also help us out. Um, And uh, the uh, the um, the speech was about foreign relations and the five R's uh, that I would um, bring to foreign policy. It's not reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's, first of all, renewing American leadership in the world. Uh, It is secondly, don't worry, I won't go through them that long. Uh, The second one um, is to repair our relationships with our allies, something we've talked about tonight. Um, The third one is to uh, renegotiate back into international agreements. I mentioned the... uh, Um, I mentioned the Russian uh, nuclear arms agreements, but also the Iranian uh, nuclear agreement, um, which this president um, uh, got us out of, which I didn't think was the right thing. And the fourth thing um, would be um, to respond appropriately when things come up around the world instead of doing tweets in the bathrobe at five in the morning. And then the fifth thing um, is to reassert American values around the world. And it really comes down to one R, and that would be um, to uh, renew sanity, return to sanity um, in our foreign policy. Senator Amy Klobuchar. And that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.